Okay, we're in a, a, a new journey, a new story in these last few weeks, just kind of tiptoeing into this, into this story with Exodus as a guide for us. And I won't be going verse by verse through it, but we'll try to capture the main storylines and not miss the hard passages too. I'm committed to that, so I'm not just gonna skip over what doesn't readily make sense and I won't have all the answers to it and neither will you. Uh, but there is some some pretty amazing big picture story that I want us to continue to be grounded in as we start this journey. I'm inviting us to be a walking people. That's not a new phrase or idea or metaphor, but I'm inviting us to uh, this year journeying together uh, and and in a practical way, a tangible way to, to try to walk every day if you are able, even if it's a short walk. Some of you already do, so good for you. Can you slow down in at least a portion of your daily walks. Take the earbuds out and just be present and listen. Don't fill it with prayer immediately. If prayers come to mind, good, but just simply walk slowly and listen. Being present unto that day, that place, that time, and what God might speak. That might be the simple prayer you you make. God, just speak. I want to be tuned to your voice today. There's tangible little rhythms that we can do throughout our days and in our days that can really form us as we, as we are disciplined to them over the course of time. And I invited us to two other practices, to a wakefulness, wake first thing in the morning, and to thank, to gratitude, as we already were praying on this morning. You can listen to the last couple messages for a little more expounding on that if you're interested at all. But these regular, simple practices are things that followers of Jesus have done throughout centuries. And they're not exhaustive by any means. And Thank you. I'm encouraged by those that are saying, yes, I'm practicing these. I'm beginning to practice these. And those of you that are adapting them. This is what's working for me. This is what is, I'm sensing the spirit in. Praise God. Do that. Lean in into that process. Walking with God is not a new phrase or metaphor, even in recent history of the maybe evangelical church or the Orthodox church. It goes all the way back to the scriptures from really beginning to end. That idea of walking with God, of journeying with him, a pilgrimage uh, in both reality and then spiritually is, is regular, is repeated throughout scripture. The apostle Paul maybe sums it up most succinctly in Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. It could be translated, let us walk continually with the spirit. And that's what we want to do. That's who we want to be. Uh, and we want to continue to employ these practices daily that take discipline. The, I love simple practices that are, we know are not easy, right? They stretch us, and continuing them faithfully uh, is probably the biggest challenge, that we would be formed into something new. It takes discipline, it takes effort. But they may be simple, daily, small practices that get us a long way, just like a journey of a thousand miles begins with, <laughs> you know the rest. So we're following this ancient book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. It's a guide. I will contend it's more relevant than maybe we ever knew, even if you've studied it before and seen it as as a powerful metaphor. I think it's more than that, but a powerful metaphor for uh, our life of faith and the journey. So that's what I want us to see again in a big picture kind of way. Uh, like so much of the narrative portions of Scripture, because not, not all of our Scriptures are narrative or describing a storyline or history, uh, but big chunks are. And like so much of the narrative, uh, they teach us not just what happened. In fact, probably not primarily what happened. That was often not the authors or group of authors in original intent to teach history like a documentary, like we might try to record it but to teach what always happens. 
This is the story of who God is and therefore how we as his called people, which is meant to be a call to all peoples, but we as his called people would respond to who he is and what he's done in his grand narrative. This is what always happens. And in that case, the scriptures become prophetic. An ancient story that reveals to us what always happens, not in specific details, right? Our current circumstances in life is unprecedented, but it's not all that unique. The scriptures reveal to us what always happens in the way of God, who God is in his love and pursuit of his people and how his people tend to respond and what that looks like. That becomes prophetic so that we can look into our present day and into the coming days and say, yes, we know these patterns are repeated because God is unchanging. I hope you can remain with me as we, I try to flesh that out a little bit. We considered last week the beginning of the whole, the whole story, the grand narrative of God's story that begins in this perfect garden that he creates, Genesis 1 and 2. This is really the first temple, is one way to say it. It's God's dwelling place on earth, but it's a garden. And so you green thumbs are vindicated. God's first dwelling place, his first temple, his religious place was a garden. The first land flowing with milk and honey, an abundant land, that's the picture that's given. And his created children, Adam and Eve as his representatives, live in perfect harmony and unity and oneness and abundance and life forever with God in this place. It's said in the scriptures that God walked through this garden. He spoke to his children. They heard his voice. After they ate the forbidden fruit, I'm skipping some parts of the story, but many of you are somewhat familiar at least, they hid from him. They believed they could hide from his presence. God pursued them, called to them. So imagine, we don't know how long they lived in this garden before that tragic event where their dwelling with him in the garden ended. We can only imagine, and we can only imagine what that life was like, but the pictures of it are perfect, abundant, wonderful, naked and unashamed in this beautiful place that God has made, right? And the rest of the story after this tragic event of eating this forbidden fruit that broke the relationship, basically it was a sign of a, they were making a new covenant. There was a covenant with God. They were breaking it in eating the fruit and making a covenant with the enemy of God. The enemy of God cunningly told them a lie that God was withholding from them that God could not be trusted. Look, this fruit is good too. God does not want you to have all good things. He does not want you to fully trust him and walk with him in everything because then your eyes will be open and you'll be like him and he would have no other. He does not want this relationship for you. So they believed this lie and they followed their own way, their own desires. And that story becomes the picture of what always happens that we inherit this, but also walk in those same footsteps into a, a world where we are desired by God to live and dwell with him in perfect unity and harmony and peace and joy and life forever. And we can still spiritually achieve that because of what Christ has done and what God has done throughout the story to bring redemption and salvation and healing, to never give up on his people. We can experience it spiritually and hope for the coming day of reunited oneness with him. This can always happen, but what else always happens? We distrust God's promises. We doubt them. 
We desire other things. We walk away from and apart from God. Every one of us follows this path. Maybe spiritually, maybe like the prodigal in an extreme way, maybe simply just in heart. This always happens. The amazing thing is, because the story becomes pretty tragic pretty quickly after Genesis, it, it quickly devolves into jealousy, hatred, division, fighting, violence, murder, and death. That becomes the story. And yet, God continues to love, pursue, make a way for his people and for him to return to dwelling with them forever. That becomes the story arc of all of Scripture. So what always happens, tragically, we walk away from and apart from God, and the story and the consequences of that are a downward spiral. And yet, so if that hasn't changed, that's tragic in all of these millennia. And yet God hasn't changed, which is incredible. And that's where our hope rests. Where is God in all of the story of downward spiral? Where is God in the story when it doesn't feel like he's showing up for his people? This is where we enter in Exodus. For hundreds of years, God's people are in Egypt, and for their recent history, they are now oppressed and enslaved people under a tyrant ruler. Where is God in all of this? They must have cried out at some point. We, on their behalf, would look into the story and say, God, where are you? He is mysteriously absent, or I would argue, contend for, he is mysteriously present. This is how Genesis ends. It ends following the story of Abraham's offspring to Isaac and then to Jacob and to Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob becomes Israel, where we get the nation of Israel through his 12 sons that become the 12 tribes. Much of Genesis revolves around this family, this extended family. And mostly, I mean, there's some ups in there, but mostly the downs. The ups are often God intervening and confirming his love and his covenant with his people. And then his people royally screwing it up. This is where the story tends to end. And some of you know the story of Joseph, the second youngest of those 12, the first son of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife. So Joseph becomes favored and loved dearly and shown favoritism by Jacob, not an ideal trait of a father. And his other brothers are so jealous and bitter against him for this place as the 11th of the 12 sons, how dare he, that they conspire together to hurt him, to harm him, even to put him to death. Ultimately, it doesn't happen. Instead, they take advantage of him and make some money off him and sell him into slavery to some traders that are headed down to Egypt. If you don't know the story at all, read it. This is God's story with his people. Tragic and amazing that God would stay with this family. Perhaps grace shines most brightly in the darkness. 
Now, God was mysteriously present through it all. If you know the rest of the story with Joseph, I'll skip over some parts. Amazingly, he doesn't die, and he's raised up through a series of miraculous events to become the second most powerful ruler in all the land of Egypt, entrusted with almost everything by the Pharaoh at that time. And through the wisdom of God poured into his life, he's able to help save Egypt and the surrounding region through a severe famine that's coming. Some of you know that story. Eventually, these brothers who had sold him years and years later have to come down from Judea and ask for food in the only place they could find it, in the storehouses of Egypt. But they had to go before Joseph, their own brother, and beg for it, unknowing that it was Joseph sitting on the throne, so to speak, and they bowing before him in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Here's what Joseph says to his brothers. And this is how Genesis concludes, which is why I'm going into just a little bit of detail as we move into this story. Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. This is an incredible declaration of God's sovereignty and his mysterious presence in the story. Joseph is not saying, and the scriptures are not saying, that God orchestrated this evil or intended this evil or was okay with this evil that happened. It is a declaration that God's intentions are only good, always, for his people, for life, for fruitfulness, for salvation, for rescue, for preservation, and for his presence to be with his people. Joseph is declaring, that's our God. And no matter what anyone else will do, that cannot be stopped. God's heart and character cannot be changed. For a time, and in God's sovereignty, and in his way, he is allowing evil to reign. I do believe God sometimes or often intervenes, depending on what your perspective is, but not always. God is allowing evil. He's allowing, just like in the garden, he allowed Adam and Eve to make a new covenant and to distrust him and follow the consequences, as we all do. He allows evil men to choose evil and harm and abuse and enslavement to others. But God's intentions have not changed to save, rescue, deliver, preserve, and provide for his people. Now, considering what Joseph had endured, this is an incredible declaration and faith. Will Israel remember their heritage? Will they remember who their God is? Will they remember who their patriarchs worshipped and trusted? The God of Joseph, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. Because now in the story... From Genesis to Exodus, hundreds of years have passed, centuries. No more Joseph, no more favor from a Pharaoh, no more position of influence. In fact, the opposite, a new Pharaoh is raised up, one that does not regard them or regard God and oppresses them or enslaves them. That doesn't mean that every year of those hundreds of years was harsh, but maybe many of recent years were. And now they're fearing even their own children at a decree to put to death the youngest, the firstborn sons, 
because Pharaoh's concerned that their numbers are growing so much that they, if they were to rally together, could overthrow his own government. And he's trying to hold on to that power. This is what always happens because evil rises up to oppress and enslave and take power. And God tends to allow it in his sovereignty for a time, not send it, not intend it, while his intentions are to bring rescue, deliverance, freedom. God's presence is mysterious throughout this time. Now, it should have been a sign that they were filling the earth. They were multiplying, even in harsh circumstances. This parallels the beginning of the story when God said to Adam and Eve, multiply, fill the earth, be abundant, be fruitful. This is how Exodus begins too. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied and filled the whole land. We're supposed to see, this is a continuation of the very same story. The same thing is happening. And yet these will also walk away from and apart from God and need to learn how to come to him and trust him as God pursues them and is about to show up in some powerful, miraculous ways. But for a time, for decades, for hundreds of years even, God's people probably would rightly say, where are you, God? We don't experience you now. And then God's people throughout history can resonate with that story and say, I know those times. My faith is rooted in simply the remembrance and the declaration of who our big God is and the meta-narrative that he is writing throughout history. Consider God's people now and in Egypt as foreigners in the land, immigrants, refugees, and God's heart and eyes are always on them. Maybe time was good for, for a while, and based on current circumstances, now out of their control with this new pharaoh, they fi- suddenly find themselves oppressed and enslaved. It makes me think of Japanese internment camps in the 40s, and immigrant people, faithful workers, hundreds and thousands coming over even to work to try to provide for their families, building much of the rail system that is still in use today. Incredibly harsh circumstances if you read any of those stories. Many of them becoming citizens, having children here who then become Japanese Americans and seemingly overnight in the 40s, because of the color of their skin or the shape of their eyes, they are immediately arrested, imprisoned, and moved into internment camps. Modern day slavery. That seems like ancient history for us, eight decades. And yet, Considering 3,000 years when these events in Exodus took place, not much has changed, tragically. It's our more recent story, and we could use others as well. Amazingly, incredibly, God has not left his people. God's eyes and his heart are on, especially the oppressed, the enslaved, the immigrants, the refugees, and so should ours. Will we walk with God even when he is mysteriously present? Will we remember our heritage, the faith of our fathers and mothers? Maybe not your actual fathers and mothers, maybe. Maybe the generations that have preceded us who held on to the promises and to God's intentions to save, to rescue, to deliver, to preserve, to provide, even when it doesn't feel like. He is present at all. When evil comes against us, 
Now, if we follow the storyline of this family that we're studying in this great nation and we follow the storyline of our own lives, we can see two things happening. We see the ways that we've been just like Adam and Eve, walking away from and apart from God, distrusting and dismissing to go our own way, to trust our own desires and the consequences of that sin and what happens. And we can also see where evil and hardship has happened against us. Just like in the story with Israel, we can trace their individual and familial sin to reject God and the consequences that came from that. And also the evil and oppression that came against them. The perfect storm tends to be what always happens. Exodus, like all of Scripture, doesn't just teach us what happens, but shows us what always happens. And I believe this is how we rightly engage and embrace and learn from this story. I don't believe it's first a history like a documentary. I believe it's intending to teach this broader message, a theological history or an allegorical history, that this is actually how the ancient Hebrews wrote now, I do believe that Moses wrote much of this or recorded much of it in document form. There's plenty of places where it says Moses wrote down these words. But most scholarship today believes that there was a group of scholars that continued to edit and work through this story to make it what it is today, which it has been unchanged for thousands of years. But in its development, it was such a powerful story that for the Hebrews, to bring their best minds and literary genius to this story like a work of art elevated the power and authority of the story. Just like when they tra first translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they employed 70 of their best minds to translate it, to try to get it as right as they could in a new language. This is how the ancient Hebrews would have worked together editing and increasing the value of the document. And it actually makes sense that in the eyes of God, he tends to work through community most, that more voices and more minds and more people end up reflecting more beauty. And I think Exodus is a work of art, that which means that there's no end to what we can mine and learn from the literary story and genius. And the Hebrews would have elevated storylines and themes more highly than historical details. That didn't make it Inaccurate. It meant they were trying to teach a bigger message of who God is and what he has done and therefore how we must live. And we must hold on to that as we come to many questions that the text just will not answer for us. And many uncertainties that as we look through history and archaeology and wonder may not line up. And that was not the heart of the Hebrews to communicate. They were trying to communicate this big story. And we must hold on to that as we study any part of Scripture, but especially as we go back this far. That's why I'm trying to do this work for you and invite you into it. There are plenty of pastors today who would say, Old Testament, leave it. Let's go right to Jesus every day, every moment. The only problem with that is, as much as I love going to Jesus and who he is and his story, is Jesus taught the Scriptures and the scriptures for Jesus was this story. He pointed back to the time of Moses and the writings of Moses and said, it all is telling the big story of God's redemption, of his unrelenting love for us, of his pursuit of us. And I have come to be the fulfillment of this story, to bring it to life, to bring it to its climax. 
And so we must understand it and go to it and glean from it and learn from it. And like a work of art, it can always be mined for something new. In the eyes of the beholders, one will be impacted and moved by it in a different way than the one right next to them. Or shine a new light on this piece of art or mural and it will look completely new. And so the scriptures are before us. But more importantly than becoming a people who know the book of Exodus and understand some of its literary nuances or geniuses, that we would be a people who walk with God. That that is vital. The with part of God is the entire storyline maybe summed up in one word, with. God's desire is to be with his people as we started looking at last week, placing it in the context of the meta-narrative of God, that God is with his people that we would be with them. In Genesis 12, 2, again a promise that I read last week that we need to hold on to as we read all of Scripture, especially in this Hebrew Scripture story. Genesis 12, 2, God's saying to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This becomes the massive vision of God to bless everyone throughout all time, we included. This covenantal promise, one of the first, will be the lens that we must look through all scripture to see that this is who our God is and what he has promised. And he's often mysteriously present in making it happen. God will complete his original intention. He will restore heaven and earth. He will make new the garden. In this story in Exodus, we will see the tabernacle constructed like a new garden where God's presence dwells. He is at work restoring it. And if we keep fast forwarding that storyline, Jesus becomes the tabernacle. Jesus becomes the temple. The curtain in the temple is torn when he dies upon the cross, releasing the presence of God into the world. Not creating access out. Given in the story in Revelation is a new garden, this time in a massive city, because God's kingdom expands and grows and multiplies, and yet the garden remains. So that storyline will continue. This is often how the, the writers of the, the Greek scriptures, we might call it the New Testament, or I would say the Second Testament, they kept this full big picture in mind and often went back to the very beginning and just simply assumed that much of their audience knew the story and could connect the dots. We must know the story to connect the dots. John, the apostle, wrote this way in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, going all the way back to the first line of Genesis. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's intentions have been forever to draw in a people and a family 
to be holy and blameless. He destined us for adoption as children through Jesus Christ according to his good intention, his good pleasure, and his will. And he's made known to us the mystery of this will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And the author of Hebrews begins his letter or discourse this way, Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways. I love that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. These are just a snapshot for us as we see understanding of the fullness of God's story from creation to recreation through sin and rebellion to God's incredible love and redemption because this is who our God is and what he has done. And therefore, regardless of our circumstances, we can walk with God in faith with confidence. Not easy, but with confidence that God is writing something much bigger and is invested into my day by day to walk with us. Even when we have times where we don't perceive his presence or his purposes, times where we find ourselves like these Israelites wandering in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, doubting and wondering about the goodness of God, or the goodness of his leaders, which he has sent, or the promises that they declare we should believe, we will have plenty of those times too. And I would contend that God is mysteriously present through it all. People will continue to choose evil over good, hurt, impression, and enslavement, and God seems to often allow it, but he is not absent. His intentions are always for good, to save, deliver, preserve, provide for life and life to the full. This is what he has promised to us, leading us again to a new garden, again to a land flowing with milk and honey, where we would dwell with him in perfect harmony and unity, and with one another for equity and justice and righteousness for all. That is our hope and the hope of the full gospel, the restoration of everything that has been broken and every rebellion against him and his kingdom, that every knee would bow, as Paul says, everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and King of this kingdom forever and ever. This is our hope. This is the invitation to walk in this journey, and it is a journey. It will be filled with uncertainty and doubts. It will test us. We will want to go back at times. We'll want to go a different way. We'll want to distrust God and listen to a different voice, the one in our head or the one out there. That becomes our story. And yet God's grace And mercy and presence is through it all. He is not going to abandon his people. He will not leave you. He forever loves you. So this morning, however you would describe your recent fortitude of faith, your recent journey with him, whether you would describe it like, I'm feeling 
okay, I'm hanging on. It's more vibrant now than it ever has been. There's a newness of life in me. Or whether you would be sitting there, why am I even here right now? I don't even know what I believe anymore. I believe that spectrum is probably captured in even a group this size. However you would describe your recent history, today is an opportunity and invitation to walk with God, to draw near to him as he is drawing near to you, to be reminded of his love and pursuit of you. He is not done with you, and you need to hear this. I think for those of us that grew up in a church environment or hearing endless sermons like this one, (laughs) we've heard enough. No, we haven't, but we've heard so much that God loves us that it may just simply wash. You need to hear that God delights in you, his son, his daughter, delights in you and wants nothing more than to dwell with you and walk with you. But our God is so gracious, he does not enforce himself, but beckons, calls, invites. He is the father in the picture of the prodigal son story. When Jesus taught that story, he's saying, here it is. Here's the whole story arc of scripture summed up in one parable. God is a good father that would give everything to his sons and daughters. In this story, it's two sons, but we know it's all. One remains with a hard heart. The other takes and leaves. God, the father, remains faithful, longing for his son who is left to come home. And when he sees him coming, and the son coming to beg, to grovel, to ask only for a place as a servant in the household, because he's seen what life looks like apart from his home, what does the father do? Demand confession, repentance, to prove that he has learned his lesson. He will not do it again. The father runs to him runs to him, and as his son is on his knees ready to beg, he lifts him up. He will not allow it in that moment. He robes him, he clothes him, he embraces him, and says, today we celebrate because my son was dead and now he's alive. He has gone from death to life. He is back. And I believe there is a time for confession and repentance and receiving that forgiveness and restoration of the relationship But that's how your God sees you. Any moment you say, I'm coming back, God. He embraces. He doesn't shake his head and say, we've been down this road before. He says, take off those old clothes that you've been walking in. And he clothes you with the robe. And he puts the ring on your finger. He embraces and he kisses you and he holds you up. And says, we celebrate now. He doesn't say, I know you'll mess this up again in a few weeks and you'll be, we'll have to do it again. He pours out his love. This is the picture of the pursuit and love of God and you need to hear that he delights in you. I do hope we become a people who understand the full story better, who can understand the story of Exodus, but I hope far more that we become a people who know that our God loves us, delights in us, and will never stop pursuing us Receive that today. Even if you don't feel worthy, he says you are. So come to this table. Be reminded of what Christ has done for you. He has done it. He's doing it today, now, forever.
And that speaks into our coming days. Walk in it and walk with him. And we get to celebrate a baptism, which is a great picture of what once was and now newness of life, cleansing, grace, mercy, forgiveness. This, this water will not make you clean, Larry. The blood of Christ has already washed you pure. But this water says, I believe it, and I want to walk in it, and I receive his embrace today.